Scripture this morning is from Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 30. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Well, good morning. Hope you had a good time celebrating the 4th with family and friends. We do have so much to be thankful for in this country. To be able to gather like this freely is something that uh, people in many countries in the world today just don't have the freedom to do and to worship as we do. It's, it's a wonderful gift from God to be able to be here and live in this country where there's freedom. We're all probably here, at least most of us, if not all, are citizens of the United States of America. Most all of us became citizens through birth. So we didn't go through the naturalization process, but it was interesting as I explored a little bit what you have to go through to become a citizen of the United States. And the final step is to go through the oath of allegiance. And I want to read part of it to you because I think it's very informative as we think about our topic today, as we think about being good, worthy citizens of the kingdom of God. Here's what the oath says. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And then to skip a few lines about... uh, serving in the armed forces, it ends this way, and that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me, God. Notice it calls for complete renouncing of any state or power or sovereignty other than the United States. And when you're a citizen of the United States, there are certain rights, and certain responsibilities that come with being a citizen of the United States. 
We have the right to vote if you're a citizen. Non-citizens don't. To run for office, to work for the government, and etc. We could list more, but those are some of the key ones. But there are also some key responsibilities as a citizen of the United States. We are responsible as citizens to pay our taxes, to obey the laws, to be responsible members of the community, to serve on a jury if we are asked, and on and on. Those are, again, some of the key ones. So it's a big responsibility to be a citizen of the United States. But when you and I accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, if you're a believer today, something happened. Now, you may have accepted Christ not knowing really the full extent of what you were doing. <laughs> you may have thought, wow, it seems true, so I better believe it, or uh, someone's loved me well, and so the, the gospel seems true, or it's a way to improve my life, or whatever. But for whatever reason, you accepted Jesus into your life. When you did so, you became a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your life was changed forever. And your sovereign, the king of the universe, claims absolute and complete sovereignty over your life, over every other power. You see, we became citizens of a higher power, higher authority than any earthly power or nation, including the United States. Revelation chapter 1, I just want to read a couple verses from that. John says this, verse 5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion, rulership, forever and ever. Amen. This kingdom that we are part of is an invisible kingdom, but it is more real than any physical kingdom on earth. And it is expanding, and it will take over everything so that, as it says over in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 9, For this reason God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every name, it says, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see, this kingdom is expanding, and the time is coming when Jesus will make clear to all his authority and his sovereignty. All will come under his authority, but for now, all believers are already under his authority. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's why we are to live as Peter lived when he said in Acts 5, verse 29, when he was arrested along with the other apostles. And they were told by the state, the powerful state of Rome, stop speaking in this name of Christ. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. You see, they knew there was a higher authority 
than any earthly power, any earthly nation. This book that we're looking at, we're studying together, this book of Philippi, or Philippians, the city of Philippi, prided itself on being a Roman colony. It was one of those few cities that had been designated as a specific Roman colony, and many citizens lived there of Rome, and it was a wonderful thing to be a citizen of Rome. You had many rights and privileges and responsibilities as a citizen of Rome. You had a lot of freedom, but you also were required to declare Caesar as Lord. You were required to worship him as a God. And that's why so many times in the New Testament there's an emphasis on, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the true sovereign. Jesus is in control. There's a higher authority than the Roman Caesar or emperor or any other power on earth. So in this book of Philippians and in our passage today, Paul is calling the Philippian people, those Christians that are there, in this Roman colony where it would be tempting to put Rome first, he is calling them to put Jesus first. And to live as a good citizen, a worthy citizen of the kingdom of God. To make that our first priority. And it's a challenge to all of us to do the same. He's calling us to live as citizens, worthy citizens, as the kingdom of, God, of the kingdom of God and give Christ our total allegiance. Remember, the theme of Philippians has to do with unity living as a gospel-centered community, and he wants to help us live as citizens of the kingdom of God because he knows that unity will come. If we're putting Jesus first and we're living for his kingdom, unity will be easy to maintain. It's when we begin living for other things that we lose our unity. In verse 27 of our passage, the bill just read, it says this in my translation, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves. This is the first command in the whole book of Philippians. And you might say it's the critical one to grasp. And it's an unfortunate translation because literally the word there means to live as a citizen. So literally what he's saying is he's saying, My first command to you, Philippians, what I want you to get first and foremost is I'm commanding you to live as a worthy citizen of the kingdom of God, as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Christ, as he puts it. Live as a citizen of the other kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, first and foremost. Now, as he does so, I think... By his example from verse 21 through 26 and by his command, I see seven rights and responsibilities that we have as citizens of the kingdom of God. Just like we have rights and responsibilities as citizens of the United States, we have rights and responsibilities as citizens of the kingdom of God. I see seven in this passage that I want to emphasize for us today. So let's dig in, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 1. Of Philippians. Paul begins this way For to me, to live is Christ. You just can't put it any better than that. <laughs> to me, to live is Christ. Our first right 
and responsibility as citizens of this other kingdom, the spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of God, is to put Christ first in our lives. To have him be our life, to live is Christ. What's he talking about? To live as Christ means we have this incredible right as citizens of the kingdom of God that Jesus has come and lives inside us and wants to be our very life, our strength, our power, our encouragement, our joy, our hope, our desire, our love. He wants our entire hearts. Love God with our whole heart, mind, strength, and soul. You see, that's a right of ours. It's a wonderful thing to have Him in us, that we get to be His vessels, and He dwells in us, and we get the privilege of depending on Him in our lives. We're not left alone. We have an intimate relationship with the King, the Sovereign, before whom every knee will bow. He lives in us, and He says, I love you. Be in relationship with me. Trust me. Let me be your life. What an incredible right. But there are responsibilities connected with that as well. We have the responsibility to honor him, to put his will above our own, to pray like Jesus did, not my will but yours be done. We have the responsibility to let him have his way in our lives, to make him our greatest joy, our greatest hope, our desire, our lover, to depend on him. Now, what does this mean, to live as Christ? Well, let me help you understand, maybe by contrast. I think this can help. It helps me to think about it this way. To live as Christ, to die as gain. If to live as money, if that is what you look to for life, then to die is poverty, loss. Can't take it with you. If for you to live as family, relationships, to die is separation. If for you to live as success, getting ahead in the world, then to die is failure, it's loss. If for you to, die, to live as happiness, I'm just going to go for all the happiness I can get out of life, then to die is emptiness. You lose it all. I like the way Kent Hughes puts it in his commentary on Philippians. He says this, According to the tabloids and celebrity magazines, for to me to live is to fornicate, to accumulate, to dine well. (laughs) Or on a more prosaic level, for to me to live in this world is to golf, to work, to garden, to travel, to watch TV, to ski, to shop till I drop. There's so many things we can look to for life, huh? But as he goes on to say, of course, if this be our life, then death is the loss of everything. So our first right and responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God, is that we might learn to have Christ be our very life, to cling to him, to depend on him, to put him above every other thing. Secondly, 
the last part of that phrase, marvelous phrase, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Our second right in responsibility is that we might see death not as an end, but as a continuation or actual gain, profit to us. He goes on to say this, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose, whether to live or die. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Paul says here, I long to die. It's a lot better. Now, most of us would say that because life is hard here and we just want to escape it. Yeah, I'd like to die. I'd just like to be gone from the pain and suffering of this world. But notice that's not Paul's motivation. To die is gain for him, not because it's an escape, because, but because it's a, he says, because it would be departing to be with Christ, to be in his presence face to face with my Lord and be transformed to be like him, to finally be with the one that I've had to trust by faith all my life on earth. And now I get to see him face to face and get to, tr- get to know him intimately like he's always known me. He uses a word here when he says, I would love to depart. It's a word that's used of a ship being released from the dock, from its moorings at the dock and able to sail away. And he says, I just long to be free to sail into Christ's presence, to be with him, to finally arrive home. Finally arrive home. Now, many of you have traveled and you've been in foreign cultures. A couple of years ago, the Armstrongs are here. We went and visited them in Indonesia. Indonesia is a very foreign culture. And we had a wonderful time with them for those two weeks we got to spend with them. But, you know, at the end of that, we were ready to come home. (laughs) For us, it was temporary. We longed to come home to what was familiar. And what Paul says is, if you're a believer and you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, then nothing in this world is really home. Home is where we're going, but... Understand this very clearly. Uh, A Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, will never feel fully at home on earth. Because we're citizens of another kingdom. We're in foreign territory. And this world is not our home. Therefore, we can never feel fully at home here. I just want to give a quick aside. Notice what Paul says. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Paul has this perspective in this passage and other passages too, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 6 through 8, where he says, when I die, I long to be home. I will be immediately with Jesus. That's his perspective. And yet in other places, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, when Christ returns with the shout of the archangel and the trumpet, And all of that, then the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, this is confusing. When I die, do I immediately go be with Jesus? Or do I stay in the ground somehow and wait for him to finally return and then I go be with him? Is there some kind of a soul sleep or something in between? 
Well, this is kind of a mystery, okay? We don't understand it fully, but let me give you my best understanding of this, how it all fits together. And that is that we live in this timeline. And the creation was the beginning at the end is Jesus' second coming. But we live in time. And we're, we're somewhere on this line and that's where we live and we are born and we live our life and we die in time. But God dwells in eternity. He's not trapped by time. So he looks down on the timeline and he sees all of it from beginning to end. Well, it seems to me, and this makes the most sense to me, that when we die, we step out of time into eternity. So when you and I die, no matter when we've died, or when Abraham died, or whomever, David, or whatever, whenever we die, in this timeline of history, we all arrive at the second coming at exactly the same time. We all step immediately into Christ's descension from heaven. And that's why Paul could say, Yeah, the dead in Christ will rise first, but man, when I die, I'll go immediately to be with the Lord. Isn't that a great hope? That we will be with Him. That's our right and our responsibility. Our right is that we have this hope of heaven, that we'll be with Him, a promise that He's coming again and we will live with Him forever. But it's also a responsibility to hold this life loosely, to see death as gain, and to look forward to being with him forever, face to face. Third right and responsibility I see in this passage, as Paul goes on, is he says in verse 25 and 26, Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The third right and responsibility as a member of the kingdom of heaven is that we have the opportunity to serve others. That's why we're here. That's why God left us here on earth. Not to just get by, just survive until he comes back or we die, but rather, because we're part of his kingdom, he wants to live through us to have the opportunity to serve others. See what Paul says here? He says, man, I'd much rather go be with the Lord, but I'm willing to stay for your progress in the faith, for your joy in the faith. I want to build you up and help you trust God more. And live as a full citizen of his kingdom. To live as a foreigner in this world, but a member of, the, of his kingdom, a true citizen of his, his kingdom. So, this is both a right and a responsibility. It's an opportunity to be free from having to live for ourselves, but it's also a responsibility that we're here to give our lives away for others. How do we do that? By building relationships by teaching others, by encouraging one another to trust Him, by getting involved in ways that point people to Jesus, to be a good example of people who are living for His kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. Our fourth right and responsibility comes in in these commands that he begins in verse 27, where he says, Live as a citizen who's worthy of the gospel of Christ, verse 27, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, whether I get let out of jail or not, he says, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm in one spirit. Fourth right and, responsi- right and responsibility is that we are to maintain the unity that God's given us. 
What does it mean to stand firm in one spirit? I believe from the context, the spirit here is the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, you are, as the people of God, as citizens of his kingdom, are to stand together, firm in one spirit, unified by the Holy Spirit that is in, in you, that is within you, that bonds you together, to realize your unity comes from him, not from looking the same or thinking the same or dressing the same or anything like that. We are unified because of the spirit in us. My son got up and prayed a few moments ago. Now, we are unified because we're part of the same family. We're from the same gene pool. And our genes make it clear at the very level of the inside of our cells, in every cell of our bodies, there's unity because we carry the same set of genes, essentially. But when... You and I committed our lives to Christ. The Holy Spirit planted himself at the very center of who we are, at the very center of our being, deeper than our genes and chromosomes, so that my oneness with you is even deeper than with him, except he's a believer too. So we're bonded on that level. And therefore our unity is because of the Holy Spirit in us, in you, in me. Therefore we are one. And so he says, stand firm in that. Be one together. Don't let anything divide you. I think that's part of what our responsibility as the believers, as believers of Christ, as citizens of his kingdom, is that we are to maintain the unity, to realize the oneness we have in him and not let anything divide us, not our petty agendas or our own selfish ideas that tend to divide us in the body of Christ. He says, no, we have a right and responsibility to stand firm in one spirit. Maintaining the unity to seek to love one another even when we disagree. The fifth right and responsibility is what I call teamwork. As the verse continues, he says, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That word mind, one mind in my translation, is the word psuche, it's soul. It's, it's a word for life. Really, we have one life that we share. And he says, in that one life, the life of Christ in us, strive together for the faith of the gospel. What does that mean, strive together? The word there, in Greek, is the root of our English word, athletics. The Greek word, athleo. He's talking about competing in life. He says... He's using an athletic term and he says we're, we're to be on the same team, to compete on the same team, to be part of the same team, to see ourselves as all working together for the kingdom of God, to build the kingdom of God, to, to not see our Christian life as me and God independent. Paul's talking about not independence, but about us together. He's talking to y'all, okay? He's speaking southern here. Y'all, y'all work together now. You're a team together. And you know what happens when you work independently? He's not saying we're, we're like golfers, professional golfers that go and we just kind of do our own thing and we compete against everybody else, but it's just me out there. If you're into golf, you know something about the Ryder Cup. 
I love watching the Ryder Cup because it's all these individual golfers who come together and they're on a team. And they're competing together as a team, the U.S. against Europe, and they are seeking to win as a team. He's saying that we are never to act independently. We're not to be Terrell Owens kinds of people, if you know football. Terrell Owens comes on a team and he always divides it because it's all about him. It's not about the team. The teams that do the best are those who learn to function as a team and everybody sees their part. And I exist not for me and my success, but for the success of the entire team. So he says, do that. That's our right and that's our responsibility. As citizens of God's kingdom, to see ourselves not as independent, but as part of one another. Working together to bring people into the kingdom and mature them for God's expanding kingdom. One last athletic example. For years and years, we would bring our NBA players in to compete at the Olympic level or the World Games, and, and we had the best athletes, the NBA players, the highest paid, etc., and we lost over and over again. Why? Because the other countries had learned to compete as a team and work together. And our, our guys were all trying to act independently. Finally, we began winning when we learned that lesson and learned, no, we can't act independently. We've got to set aside our own egos, our own agendas, and begin to function as a team. That's what God calls us to as the people of God. We're all here on earth for the faith of the gospel, to live for the kingdom, to build up one another. So Paul exhorts the Philippians and us, and in particular the Philippians who are having conflict, we find later in chapter 4, and we have conflict at times, but he says what's most important is that you see yourself as part of a team, working together for the faith of the gospel. Two more rights and responsibilities. Verse 28 says this, In no way alarmed or afraid by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. He says, We have a right and a responsibility to not be afraid of opposition, to not be alarmed, to not panic. This word that he uses here to be alarmed is used of Horses who suddenly get spooked and they stampede. Now, I don't know if you've actually seen that happen. It's pretty frightening. <laughs> when you see them just panic, they get so scared and they take off. One of the jobs I had was working for the BLM when I was in college, Bureau of Land Management, and, and one of our jobs was rounding up wild horses. So we built a long fence and then down in this canyon we built a trap with big eight-foot-high fencing, and we camouflaged it with sagebrush and built this big trap, and the, and the riders rode the, this big herd of horses in, and then our job when they drove them in was to, there were about six of us who sprinted across the opening that they went in and held up a canvas and put our feet on the bottom and held it up above our heads so that when the horses tried to turn around, all they would see is a wall. Okay? Yeah, you're thinking... Not very smart, right? Hey, it worked. Usually. So this time, they drove the horses in. We sprinted across the opening, put our feet on it, held it up, 
And, you know, it was looking good, except one of the guys didn't get his feet on it. And when we all pulled on it, his, there was a gap there. And those horses saw that gap and stampeded directly for him. Somebody screamed. Well, I couldn't see. I was behind the canvas, you know, so I'm just there. But you're hearing this stampede. They're coming. And somebody yelled and said, get out of there. So we just sprinted for the side, except the one guy. And those horses hit that canvas and wrapped him up in it and drug him about 100 yards. I tell you, it was a whole herd. It was miraculous he wasn't stepped on, but he was beat up pretty bad. It really was miraculous that he survived. But you know what? I understood then what Paul's saying here. In no way panicked, alarmed, stampeding by your opponents. He says, as as believers, because we have a sovereign who's above anything on earth, we don't have to be afraid. We get the right and the privilege of knowing no matter what people do to us, we're okay. Even death can't hurt us. Why? Because ultimately we, we serve a sovereign who's greater than anything on earth, and therefore we don't have to be afraid of opposition. Paul's sitting in a Roman prison and he says, guess what? You don't have to be afraid. Don't be afraid of opposition. We don't have to be afraid because we serve a sovereign who's greater. So it is our call as citizens of the kingdom of God to live without fear. That doesn't mean that we don't get a little afraid, but it means we can stand with courage when people reject us. When we suffer persecution, when people think we're idiots or fools because we believe in Christ, it's just a crutch. When we get shut out of certain things because we're believers, we can stand with courage. And he says something amazing happens when we do that. It says it's a sign of destruction for them, but a sign of salvation for you. He says it communicates something to those people when you stand with courage in the face of their rejection and you are not intimidated by that. It points out to them that you serve a higher sovereign and that they don't. (laughs) It's a sign of destruction. But it's a sign of salvation for you because when you're able to stand with courage, when you know you don't have the strength to do that, And you stand with courage in the face of rejection and continue on. It's a sign to you that, wow, God is in me. He has saved me. He's at work in my life. Thank you, Lord. We really are part of another kingdom. And therefore, we can live with courage. And then the final right and responsibility as citizens of the kingdom of God that I see here is that we have the opportunity to embrace suffering. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, most of us really like the first part of that verse. That word granted is a word that means it's a gift of grace. It's a gift of love. It's a marvelous gift. And he says, it's been given to us not only to believe in him, And we want to stop there and we say, yeah, thank you for the gift of salvation. I like this gift. I want to unwrap that. And and he says, but also it's been given to you to suffer for his sake. And most of us look at that gift and we think, can I send this back? Is there a return label here? Uh, UPS? This is not the gift I was wanting. 
But Paul's perspective is, ha, it's a gift that we get to suffer for his sake. It doesn't mean it isn't painful. It doesn't mean we like suffering. Suffering is hard. But it means we see something far greater in its purpose. And it means, get this, this is very important for us to grasp. That suffering is not a sign of God abandoning us. Feels like that, doesn't it? Suffering is not a sign of God abandoning us, but rather it's a sign of a special grace granted to us. Isn't that amazing? But as a citizen of the kingdom of God, our perspective can begin to shift and we can begin to see suffering as a special grace granted to us. Now, we don't know all what God does through it, but we know quite a bit. Here are just some things that suffering accomplishes in us and for us. Suffering is an opportunity to follow in Jesus' steps. He suffered for us and we get to follow in the steps of our Lord and Savior. Suffering changes us. We don't change very easily, but suffering works to chip away the hard-heartedness and to help us become more like Christ. Suffering forces us to depend on Christ because we get brought to the end of ourselves, right? The end of our rope, and there's nowhere to turn except to Him. So suffering is a wonderful gift to help us depend on Him. Suffering helps us focus on what's important. If life's going well, we get caught up in things that are not really important. But suffering forces us back to what's really important in life. Suffering allows us to walk in the footsteps of Paul and of every other believer who's walked the face of the earth because we all suffer for his sake. The kingdom of God expands through our suffering because as we get squeezed by the sufferings of life, the life of Christ gets released to the world. You see, it's one of the greatest tools God uses to expand his kingdom and to let others see that Jesus is real. And he does that in a large part through our suffering. So it's a privilege. It's a privilege to embrace suffering and let God accomplish his work through us. And so our responsibility is to endure it, to persevere and keep clinging to him in whatever suffering God has allowed you to go through. So we've come full circle, haven't we? We started out with to live as Christ. If you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom, you need to learn to depend on him. And we've ended with suffering, which releases the life of Christ so that the kingdom of God can expand. I like this quote by Blaise Pascal. He says this, We all have the same misfortunes, the same griefs, the same passions, and then as he talks about it, he says, but what's important, are you at the top of the wheel? He said, life is like a wheel. Are you at the top of the wheel in your suffering? Or are you near the center? If you're near the center, you'll be less disturbed by the same revolutions. Now let me expand on that a little bit. 
Think about a wheel. And if you're on the outside of the wheel, you're further from Christ as your life. And you're looking to other things for life. You're going to be thrown and tossed as the wheel of life turns. But the closer you are to the center, to Christ himself, living for the kingdom of God, depending on him, the more you'll be able to handle life because you'll be less disturbed by the turnings that come your way. When we asked Jesus into our lives, we became citizens of a whole other kingdom, the kingdom of God, every one of us, with its marvelous rights and its responsibilities as well. The United States Oath of Allegiance says you need to put this, ki- this country above everything else in your life. And Jesus came along and said, no, I have a higher authority and I'm calling for all of you to depend on me fully, to give me your life, to be sovereign, because ultimately he is the one who will reign over all kings, all countries, all nations, all peoples. So let me give you a couple of challenges to close with. Do you see yourself first and foremost as a citizen of the United States or of the human race, this global world, or first and foremost as a citizen of the kingdom of God with one president, one king, one Lord, Jesus himself? The way you answer that question deep in your heart really determines how you live whether you live for his kingdom or for something else. And the second challenge, God is challenging you and me to live as citizens of his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, to put our hopes, our energies, our lives into building the kingdom of God because it's the only one that will last. Because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus and no one else is Lord. That's the kingdom I want to live for. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have made us citizens of your kingdom. May we live our lives for your kingdom, seeing you as the ultimate sovereign over all, claiming our full allegiance to renounce all other authorities including self, and to let you be Lord of our lives. May we glorify you by letting you be Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.